Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Zippy the Wonder Snail. We are so glad to be here with you, two Christian guys zipping through news and culture that matter to you. I am here with my co-commissar, Jason. Hey, Jason, how are you today? I'm good. How are you, Tim? I am doing just great. In fact, it might be a gold medal day for discussion, which leads us right into our first topic, which is the Olympics. Man, Tim, you know, I told you off the air that I I thought about boycotting, but they sucked me in, and thank goodness they did. Uh, Started with the speed skating, the long track speed skating. It's been so thrilling, especially on the women's side. There's a lady named Irina Schouten of the Netherlands, and she won the 3,000 meters. It it was unbelievable what I saw. Maybe it was 3,000 or maybe it was 1,500, but she came. Uh, she won by over a second and a half, and I just, like, it was astonishing. Uh, coming from behind on the last lap, uh, making it up, Basically, in 300 meters on the last lap, it's been very exciting. And then last night, I'm sure you saw uh, that Nathan Chen won the gold medal in the men's uh, the men's figure skating last night, and it and it wasn't close. So, uh, did you catch that one? I didn't catch it, but I did see the headlines. Uh, but I, I've uh, my schedule hasn't been working very well for actually watching it this time. I've been really mostly tuning in late at night and turning on NBC will do sort of the late night edition where it's live. It actually is live because everything's happening, you know, half a world away. Um, And it's a little bit more fragmented and maybe not quite as narrative driven as what they do during the primetime hours, but kind of getting the Olympic feel, but I I haven't seen any of the sort of the big, the big grand uh, items of the Olympics thus far. Well, and I, I caught a look at the women's luge, um, that was quite interesting. Four runs uh, to settle the women's luge in just a cumulative time on the four runs. And then after after the speed skating, which was very exciting, uh, we had the women's luge, and they had four runs. Um, and it, it was extremely exciting. And the reason it was exciting is because we now have a three-time consecutive winner of the women's luge, Natalie Geisenberger of Germany, now at the age of 33, uh, has won the luge for the third consecutive time. And that's never been done in history. And I was saying before, the only time that it's been done is by a German man, Georg Hockel, won three in a row uh, for Germany earlier in uh, this century. So, uh, wow. just some great dominant performances being put on at the Olympics. And the other thing, and and what's been happening, we kind of talked about a boycott, uh, you know, because of, of uh, China's human rights abuses and things like that. Yes. But the, the thing that sucks you in about the Olympics is just the personal stories of the athletes, right? And, Absolutely. And so they don't have... You know they don't really have a lot to do with whatever whatever China is doing, right? Um, and so some of those things just draw you in, and they they kind of demand your attention, even even beyond the events themselves. Um, I wanted to mention also uh, somebody from the United States, uh, Jesse Diggins, 
She is our cross-country skier. She's our best cross-country skier. Maybe definitely one of the best in the world. Um, and she won the first individual uh, cross-country medal for the United States uh, on the women's side. We've never done that before, apparently. Um, and so she won the bronze medal. Uh, what event was that? That's what I can't think of. Um, it wasn't just, oh, it was the, it was the cross country, uh, freestyle. There's, there's a classic event, which is kind of rigid in how you do the cross country skiing. And then the freestyle is a little more, there's more motion that can happen, uh, with the arms and the legs. Uh, so she won the bronze medal and actually, um, another competitor, from the United States, who I I can't remember her last name, but I think her first name is Rosie. Um, but she was 33, and she got uh, she got fifth in the same event. So good performances uh, by the Americans in the Alpine events, uh, which is not uh, it's it's not that common for us. A lot of times we lose to the Germans or to the Austrians. Um, and so we're doing well there. Uh, anyway, anything you want to add to this Olympic segment, comrade? Well, um, I mean, we we covered last episode a bit of the the challenges that revolve around what you alluded to about wondering if we should boycott the Olympics or not. And and I've wrestled with that a little too. As I watch, I feel a little guilty, and yet I've also thought, well, I'm not really doing anything materially to contribute to the Chinese cause by watching NBC. As, as far as I can discern, at least. So so there's that. But another aspect that sort of feels a little weird to me, I, I was just hearing about this yesterday. I, I hadn't put it together. I usually don't watch Olympic hockey, but I was listening to a story about the Chinese Olympic hockey team, which apparently is primarily composed of non-Chinese citizens from the United States and Canada and some other countries that are very much into hockey because apparently China d- doesn't really have enough uh, Olympic quality hockey players to to field a team itself. So there's a, apparently this whole arrangement where they sign multi-year professional contracts with players from other parts of the world to bring them over and play on the Chinese national team, even though those players have no connection to China. Not you know they're not. Um, they're not second-generation Americans who have family in China. They're not people who have decided to become Chinese citizens. None of that. They're just simply professional players. And it's kind of a, a weird, not necessarily a boycott-worthy thing, but simply something that raises some questions in my mind about what does it really mean to have an Olympic team in which the people uh, don't have any connection to the country they're competing for? And uh, I wonder what your thoughts were on that. Well, and one of the complications, complicating factors there is that the host nation uh, for the big events and in basketball it happens the same way the host nation receives an automatic qualification so it, it could have been that they they literally did not have enough people of a certain quality to to field a team with uh, with native Chinese so um, and it, and it's not unheard of. I I think it's a little bit sketchy, but it it's it's a little bit um, it's not unprecedented because it 
It also happens at the Little League World Series. You'll see this a lot um, with a team, with a team, especially from Saudi Arabia. You'll get a whole bunch of American expats on the Saudi Arabian team that plays in the Little League World Series. Um, so, whether or not there's a bending of the rules, or you know, China using their influence, that's an interesting question. I don't know. I think the thing that worries me a little bit about that is, you know, in theory, the Olympics are supposed to be about as about the athletes, and there's some sort of maybe healthy uh, national pride in there too, where it's the different countries of the world showing off what they can do in in a in an athletic spirit, in a you know, hopefully in a, a very positive way. And, and it seems to me that. You, you know, there have always been questions, how professional should the athletes be able to be before they get in and all that sort of stuff. And I'm really not bothered by the idea of professional athletes playing. It seems like you should have the very best in whatever uh, field. I do wonder, though, it just feels really weird to me, the idea that you have players that don't even have citizenship in the country they're playing in or family citizenship in the country they're playing in. You know, there's been some controversy about a couple of athletes who renounced their American citizenship and took Chinese citizenship ahead of the Olympics. And and I'm confused and not necessarily pleased with the idea of anyone adding credence to China, given their human rights abuses. And and I wonder about the wisdom of that, but I I kind of at least can respect there's a cost to it, right? These these athletes have chosen to give up something of value, their American citizenship, saying, I want to be on the Chinese team. And and whether I think that was a good idea or not, it it makes sense to me. But the idea that you can have someone from, I think one of the players on the hockey team is from Detroit. You have someone from Detroit who plans to go back to Detroit um, and is getting paid to compete against his own country on a different team. It just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. And it also makes me wonder what the implications are for less wealthy countries if if this is a trend that were to continue over time. So uh, you already have disproportionate advantages if you're Team USA or Team Russia or or what have you, uh, that there's huge financial uh, incentives being poured into building good training facilities and all this sort of stuff. But if you build on top of that the idea that you can actually just field a team of the best athletes in the world regardless of where they're from – it seems to me you could get to a point where it really is just a competition for which country has the most money and not even what country happens to have people that, you know, spent all their lives practicing for a given sport. Right. Right. I'm going to tell you, there's absolutely no way that I can compete against the United States. Uh, uh, and, and especially not for China, um, you know, Political jokes aside, between you and I, that would not happen. Uh, so, yeah, uh, to me, and and to even think about renouncing my American citizens citizenship, I don't think I could do that either. The only the only possibility is if Jesus asked me to renounce my American citizenship, then I could do it. Amen. But, Jesus wouldn't necessarily ask me to do that, so there we are. Yeah, I don't think he'd want you to be aligning yourself with the Chinese Communist Party. Um, yeah, I don't think so either. <laughs> I, I want to. It, it is. It has persuaded me watching the Olympics that uh, if we keep the focus on athletes, then maybe we could still enjoy the Olympics even with 
China's human rights abuses. Um, but, you know, your mileage may vary, listeners. You may decide you can't do that. And I, and I started to. Um, well, because I told you off the air that it made me really mad with uh, there, there was some jury rigging in a uh, short track speed skating event where the United States was disqualified in favor of China, and then China went on to win the gold medal. Yeah. Um, so that made me real mad. And and if you train that hard for that long, you know, the, the athletes would be mad too. I don't suppose there's any, like, final court of appeal for that kind of stuff. I totally agree. And in light of what we've been talking about, I do think as much as we can keep focused on the athletes, uh, it, it's a good thing. Um, I, I kind of wish the Olympic, the International Olympic Committee would would take some decided steps to stand for human rights, and in that, maybe, for example, not be quite as inclined to pick totalitarian regimes as a place to to host the Olympics. Right. Um, you know, you know, we've been in China twice, and we've been in Russia once in just about a decade, and that just seems kind of kind of troubling. Um, but. The, the Olympics are still the Olympics. There's still something special about them. And uh, as much as I'm I'm kind of squeamish on some of this, I, I couldn't bear not to watch them at all. Um, and hopefully I won't reflect back and think of somehow that I helped China by doing that. Right. A quick note uh, before we move on. They're having trouble. The International Olympic Committee is having trouble recruiting host cities because it's so expensive um, and it caused such a causes such a disruption that maybe um, they're going to have to reform the process of doing that because uh, nobody wants to take the Olympics. Uh, so that's an interesting thing to watch going forward. Yeah. They, it'd be nice to figure out a way to make it more feasible. I, I'd love to see the Olympics return to St. Louis someday, but not uh, the sort of cost that currently costs where it basically would bankrupt the city for all eternity. Right. It was a lot easier in 1904, I guess, you know? Yeah. Well, we have a new sponsor for the show today, and that is Biblical.com. It's B-I-B-L-I-C-L-E. That's L-E on the end, dot com, which is a Biblical Wordle clone. And if you've been into Wordle Mania playing this incredibly addicting once a day word game and you would like some more of it and you'd like to maybe even explore the Bible a little while doing it, you should check out biblical.com brought to you by Faith Tree, which every day has a word of the day, same basic rules as Wordle, but with the twist that each word is a five letter word coming out of the English Bible. And when you complete it, whether you succeed or you failed to get the word for the day, it will tell you what that word is and where it shows up in scripture. So it's a way to get to know the Bible a little bit better while playing a fun game. And so you should check it out. Biblical with an L-E on the end dot com. Hey, comrade, how, how's, uh, how, how are you doing with Wordle? Speaking of Wordle. Um, I haven't played yet today. Uh, did I miss yesterday as well? I'm in a funk, I guess. Oh no, you're going to break your streak. Yeah, between, between Wordle and Taylordle, which is exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, I'm having fun. I'm enjoying it. At first, I was not enjoying it because I was not successful initially, but I'm starting to get the hang of it, I think. I'm not dominating like some people. Some people finish it in two guesses and three guesses. Like, look, I need all six, okay? 
Um, so, and then as long as I get the word, I'm happy. You know, it doesn't matter if it's two guesses or three guesses. I was tweeting about that earlier this week. Uh, some of you people, you know, I've got one friend who's, who, let's say he has a, a gift for attention to detail. He's got a whole method that he's worked out to figure out, and he goes through all these permutations to try to figure out how to maximize getting the letters to show up in the word. And I'm like, hey, man, I can't do all that. I'm just going to start with tacos and go from there. So, so you do have a standard word you start with? I don't always start with tacos, but everyone loves tacos, so I've done that twice. Um, and it, Can't go wrong with tacos. It's helped me both times. Hmm. I might have to crunch into that myself. <laughs> I, I keep changing my word. I, I've tried a number of different words, trying to think of one that hits as many common letters as possible. And it seems like, yeah, I'll, I'll think, well, that wasn't such a good idea. Um, Taylordle's proven even trickier because it's hard to think of a word that captures all these different letters that you want to hit. And also is going to be a word that would be associated in some way with Taylor Swift. Uh, I, I, although, funny thing is, I, I think I've been almost doing better the last week on Taylordle than I have on Wordle, and, and that's frustrating me. <laughs> well. I mean, I'll never go out of style, though, so. <laughs> Look what you made us do, Tim. <laughs> uh, you know, the funny thing with Taylordle is I, I played it a couple of days after I said it to you half-jokingly, and uh, that's actually how Biblical showed up, because I, I was playing Taylordle, and I thought, well, if Taylor Swift is is well-suited for a Wordle clone, then why not the Bible, too? And so uh, the next thing I knew, I'd spent a week in coding my own Wordle-infused idea, and uh, so then you have Biblical, too. That's pretty much prototype you. That's, that's very on-brand. <laughs> meanwhile, I am... I am outraged by by my first word in in biblical, <laughs> and so I am protesting biblical as, as we speak, boycotting your word all clone. Oh, hey! If you if you aren't boycotting the the Chinese Communist Party Olympics, then you shouldn't be boycotting a Bible infused wordle. You make a good point, but then again, you don't call me comrade for no reason. <laughs> True, true, true. That is most certainly true. Another thing we wanted to talk about on the show today uh, are the rising tensions between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, It looks like the Russians are going to invade. Yes, uh, it it feels like old times, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. what year is this? Is 41 still president? Wow, this is... But um, it is a concern, and uh, you were saying before the show started that the United States uh, has some troops on standby in Europe, just in case. Yes, my understanding is that 8,000 troops have been given uh, deployment alerts. Uh, I'm not sure that's quite the correct term, but in other words, have been notified they're going to be deployed Um to to prepare for the potential invasion of Ukraine and is it's a it, it seems like it's an almost impossible situation because on the one hand if we make it clear we won't do anything um i, I think Putin would love to roll into Ukraine and on the other hand if we 
say we are willing to do something and we actually get into a war with Russia, it's really, really hard to see what the end game is going to be. Right, and it's hard to see anything positive that would come from that as well. I I am hoping that the that the credible threat of United States military involvement will deter Russia from doing this uh, because we don't want a hot war, obviously. But I think they think that maybe uh, just the U.S. presence would dissuade the Russians. Uh, I think that's what President Biden is hoping. Uh, don't know if that'll work. I don't know what we'll do about it or how that changes the the strategic priorities in the area if they do invade. Uh, so I guess we'll see. Tim, do you have any thoughts? I find myself with such a weird contradictory mind on this because on the one hand, I, I'm with, totally with you. I don't want a hot war. Uh, well, I, I mean, hopefully no one does. I'm sure there's someone that does. But I mean, hopefully we never want that. Um, I, I do worry, though we've already given pretty strong signals that we don't intend to actually put troops in Ukraine. And I am worried that that is essentially an invitation for Putin to continue his gradual annexation of Ukraine, much in line with what he did in Crimea, what, uh, seven or so years ago now. And, and so I kind of wonder if I were in the leadership of NATO, I think I would feel that it was, perhaps in everybody's best interest to go ahead and allow Ukraine into NATO right now. Because if if Putin takes Ukraine, I don't think he's going to stop at Ukraine. And I I, I think we, we just need to look back at world history. People who, who annex other countries don't usually stop. And so the question is, do we want a battlefield in Ukraine or do we want it in Poland or do we want it in Romania, or do we want it? I mean, where do we want to actually fight the Russians? I, I hope that we can keep it from being an actual war, um, as as you mentioned. That what we're really aiming for is a deterrent. But I, I think perhaps the best deterrent is to say we're not going to give any ground. That we're not going to allow the Russians just to take a country, regardless of what country. It is. Especially while Ukraine isn't part of NATO, we do have relatively friendly relations with them. We we ought to make it pretty clear that one country can't invade another country that's actually one of our friends, and I, I think we we should make that clear here. I I don't know what Putin would do in reaction to that, but if he if he wants a war, we're going to end up in a war at one point or another, regardless. And it would just be better if we we try to limit the damage and don't say, well, you can take Ukraine, just don't take anything else. And I feel like even though we're saying, please don't take Ukraine, if we're saying, please don't take Ukraine, but if you do, we're not going to go in and help them out. Um, I think that's dangerous. Yeah, I mean, there there are some obvious parallels to Europe in the 30s uh, with Germany annexing things. Um, and then the world, the, the Western world in Europe kind of ignored it because they weren't ready to fight England and France weren't ready to fight. Uh, and, and you know, the dictator that shall not be named was counting on that. Um, and so I don't want to see that again. And so if he really is, and, and he has been, Putin has been outspoken in wanting to rebuild the Soviet empire. So it, there is a precedent for this is exactly what he's trying to do. Now, whether or not you can put together a multinational coalition to stop it, uh, especially in terms of 
not having to use outright military force, hot war, as we said before, uh, that's that's debatable. And a, and a president's what's interesting about that is a presidency that wanted to be defined by domestic politics may end up being defined by foreign policy. Uh, yeah. Which okay, that could go anywhere, you know, politically. And, and what are the Chinese going to do? No, that's the interesting question. I kind of wonder if there's a, a risk of the Chinese and the Russians striking at the same time, uh, because you know the Chinese would really, really like to. Um, we would say annex, and they would say reclaim Taiwan. And obviously, Russia seems to have a similar feeling towards Ukraine. And, and so, I think one real possibility that I, I hope our government is playing out and trying to think of what what should be done in is what we do if you actually have two battlefronts emerge at once, which again would seem eerily reminiscent of World War II. Um, and I, I think we we need to be realistically prepared for that and what the right thing to do in that situation is, because it, it, it's it, it would actually make a great deal of strategic sense, especially when we know that the Russians and the Chinese have been cozying up to each other. Well, and I think remembering back to my old studies in political science, the United States military, one of the reasons for the strength of the U.S. military and its sheer size and the amount of money that we spend on it is to be able to conduct two hot wars in different areas of the world simultaneously. So uh, whether or not we should do that, whether or not we should change our spending priorities, that's a different discussion. But the United States is presently set up to conduct a two-front war. Let's hope we don't have to use that capability. Uh, but it, it looking like we might. We'll see what this aggression turns out to be from the Russians or if they can be deterred by diplomatic means. I don't think so. Putin is an old KGB guy. They're not. They're not e- easily frightened. You. You're not just going to talk them to death. You just have to say, "Listen, you can't do this." And if you do, you're going to face consequences. Yeah. Uh, it makes me wonder if the only way to really reason with Putin would essentially be a return to the old Mad Doctrine. Russia needs to be convinced that it would end so badly for them, even if it ends badly for us, that it isn't worth it. And maybe. The the one thing I think we have going for us when dealing with Putin is I don't think he's a madman. I think he's an evil man, uh, but I don't think he's a madman. And so if he actually believed he would destroy his country by engaging us, I think there would be a much better chance of averting this. He's not the North Korean regime, where I'm not sure that really is a, a discouragement from provocation, but... But as long as he thinks that we don't really have the heart for it and that he can take one country here and there and, and slowly rebuild his empire, I, I just don't think us giving him stern warnings about how we think it would really be unfortunate is going to do anything. Right, right. Um, where was I going to go with that? Oh, yeah. The, the, old, uh, the old doctrine of realism uh, and balance of power, the Kissingerian kind of way of looking at the world, depends, uh, if not on moral actors, on rational actors. So 
when when we're operating in that scope, we we anticipate that self-preservation is going to be a big factor in explaining why a country does what it does. And I think, ironically, in the case of Iran, for example, uh, their their goals are clearly understandable. They want, on the one hand, influence in the region, and on the other hand, they want to be left alone and purged of all, you know, Western influences and things like that. So I, I think I think agreeing with you, Putin is a rational actor. Uh, others may not be. North Korea is a good good example of that, uh, but. Rational does not mean good or sensible. It may take force to settle this down. Yeah, it's definitely going to to test if we have the resolve. And and ultimately, what worries me is I think we will have to have the resolve because I, I do think if Putin is able to take Ukraine, he will take other Eastern Bloc countries. And if he takes other Eastern Bloc countries successfully, ultimately... I don't think he's going to stop and say, okay, I now have the same borders we had back in the USSR. I'm really happy now. If he thinks he can keep rolling, he will. And so at some point, we're going to end up in this if it starts, uh, whether it's now with Ukraine, whether it's you know down the road, like I said, with a country like Poland, which obviously we're, we're committed to the defense of, or if somehow we, we decide we don't have the resolve for that even, and he, he rolls through Poland, um, then it's going to be when he rolls into Germany or he rolls into some other Western European country that we almost certainly feel called to defend. And, and so it, it, to me, it's a matter of picking when the battle is going to happen. The, the sooner it happens, if it has to happen, probably the better, because if he's able to take valuable resources in different countries, potentially you end up with a, a stronger uh, Russia that becomes a harder enemy to defeat. It, and again, I think that will, even if it's not a planned joint strike between Russia and China, if Russia can roll into Ukraine, I really think that's going to do us no favors in seeing our friends in Taiwan any safer. Right, I agree. I, I think the bright line is actually Ukraine, because after Ukraine, you have Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, um, countries that the USSR always tried to reclaim, and they were the first ones to say, no, uh, we're not going to do this. So I think the bright line is actually Ukraine, and I don't think there's going to be waiting around. I don't I don't think um, avoidance of war uh, is so strong in the current administration that they would that they would stand for an invasion of Ukraine. Uh, I hope I'm right about that. I do hope so. Um, I just hope that we don't try to achieve peace for our time instead, because as we learned the better part of a century ago, peace for our time when it's not really peace isn't going to be peace at all. Exactly right. The parallels are kind of astonishing, really. If you think about it, we need to be we need to be ready. You know, like they say, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. Let's not repeat it. World War II was kind of tough. Let's hope that we don't don't play that again. Uh, somebody picked a fight with Taylor Swift, and they regretted it, didn't they, comrade? 
Yeah, uh, his name is, I believe it's Damon Alburn. Um, is that right? Um, I, I didn't know him by name. I know of the band that he's in, uh, The Gorillas, which I never was particularly a fan of. Yeah, me neither, but I did see that on Twitter a little bit, yeah. You want to recap that controversy a little bit there? Yeah, so he did an interview, being interviewed about songwriting, and he was talking about, I believe, the lack of songwriters in the world. And the interviewer said, well, you know, she's not necessarily your style, but what about Taylor Swift? And he said, she doesn't write her own music. Yeah, that's preposterous. And then they pressed him for an explanation, and he said, well, she has co-writers, and it's like... Hey, man, the Beatles co-wrote everything together. Bad example. It seemed like he just wanted to pick a fight, even though he said that wasn't the case. Because after that, then they, they pressed him on who he does like. And he said, uh, Billie Eilish, uh, who happens to, as it turns out, he doesn't he didn't say this, but if you follow what she's done at all, she co-writes her music with her brother. Yeah, that's right. I do remember. I can't remember his name at this moment, but I, d- I did remember that Billie... Uh, co-writes with her brother yeah so i guess maybe it doesn't count as co-writing if it's with your family uh that must be the logic that our that our buddy from the gorillas is operating under yeah it didn't make sense to me yeah really really bizarre and naturally the response is what you'd expect which is um uh taylor swift isn't one to really take slights very well Uh, i think that she's actually pretty much made that clear in her own music. (laughs) And so she was a very mad woman um, and responded by saying she used to be a fan of Damon Albarn until he did this. And of course that meant that the hordes of Swifties turned their, their tar and feathers and pitchforks towards uh, a man they probably hadn't ever even heard of. Yeah. Well, if they did buy any gorillas records, uh, they're not going to be doing it now, but how old do I sound records? Really? Unlikely. Yeah, well, you know, uh, the last few years, vinyl's been making a resurgence, so maybe maybe you're not making yourself sound as old as uh, it sort of feels like. That is true. It is. Uh, there is always a uh, a niche and a group of people that love their vinyl and good for them. Yeah. The preservation of uh, notable recording materials, I'm all in favor of. So. Yeah. Um, you know, it's an interesting discussion in any case because I, I do feel like, and maybe it's because of her pop stardom status, but especially up until folklore, a lot of people really seem to miss the fact that Swift is a, a brilliant lyricist. I mean, she isn't just a pop star. She she actually can hold hold her own quite well against some of the greatest songwriters. Right. I agree. And I think I think in that way, it could reflect a little bit of a combination of sexism and, you know, kind of the discrimination against beautiful people because they just look at her and go, oh, she's a pretty face and she's just a pretty face or something like that. Yeah, it definitely feels like a bit of sour grapes. Um, it, it, I just don't see, and especially, I mean, with her last few albums, and even the the success she's had at going back and adding to her previous albums as the Taylor's versions come out, um, I just don't see how you could deny her her songwriting chops. Um, I am still struggling to think of a Gorillaz track that I am aware of, um, which is not a knock. I just I was like, yeah, I've heard that name, but I can't even think of a song. Yeah, it wasn't one of them. Uh, feels good or something like that. I think they they got played a lot. Yeah, that that's right. 
Um, but they had some help with that, I think. Uh, like there was a guest artist. Um, I, I wonder if that counts for songwriting credits or not then. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess we'll have to do some digging. We'll report on that uh, later on. We'll, maybe we'll come back to this. Maybe I'll review the gorillas later on. We're open for business. We'll see. That that could be interesting. Um, certainly, though, I have to say on this one, if, if you want to demonstrate that you have some common sense, picking a fight over the internet with Taylor Swift is probably a really bad idea. <laughs> and, I, and I know we're a couple of Swifties over here, but yeah, that was a really bad. That was a bad plan. I mean, you know how her fan base is. They're crazy. We are nuts. <laughs> the Swifties, we're nuts. <sighs> Uh, yeah, it's almost like um, uh, we have the Swift Boat Veterans for Truth here or something. <laughs> That's another issue altogether. <laughs> Faith Tree Grow is a place where throughout the week when you hear bad news like we've been talking about, when you're dealing with just bad news and challenges and uncertainty in your own life, or even when things are going really great and you just realize that you need to come to the one who is the source of all blessing, any of those those situations. Faithtree.com Grow is a great place to go in those moments because you'll find throughout the week scriptural encouragement from believers from different churches, a, a way to search the Bible and find devotionals and sermons that relate to whatever text you look up. And also written pieces from Open for Business that relate to our faith. And right in the center of all that right now is our series through the Psalms, Songs for Our Temple. Jason, you and I are, are part of a four-person team going through the Psalms this year. And each week we're going to go through three Psalms. We'd love for our listeners to join in with us. And throughout the week, not only is there a video every Sunday to help set up the week and think about how we go into those next Psalms. Then throughout the week, there's discussion on grow.faithtree.com where you can provide questions and your own insights and so on into the Psalms we're going through. It's a great thing to do, especially in uncertain times. And you can do it at grow.faithtree.com. our theme music there we might think we're going to go to a jazz club but we're actually going to uh end our time together with some time in the word and i know you and i tim have encountered uh some loss recently and so we need to be reminded of our hope in the bodily resurrection and so i thought we could go to first corinthians 15 and just talk about uh the resurrection of the body that's promised there from Paul, and he tells us that, manly, he tells us, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. So in the first place, the first one to be raised, the first fruits of all creation is Jesus Christ. And then us in turn, who die, uh, hoping in Christ, we will be raised. And actually, everyone will be raised, even those who are, are judged at the end of time will be raised. So the resurrection uh, the resurrection of the body, as we say from the creed, is one of our 
most profound hopes as Christians. It is, I think it's the hallmark of, of Christianity, the rising of Christ to new life after he died, and also us in turn. Um, when we face death and we face loss, when we lose loved ones to death, that seems to always come for us. What is our hope? Our hope is that uh, death has been swallowed up in victory. To know that we will see one another again in the resurrection in Christ uh, fills me with profound hope and even a certain joy, even through the sorrow of loss. And especially in light of the pandemic, when death is all around us, uh, we need this hope. We need to focus on the resurrection. We need to go back to his words in 1 Corinthians 15. And it doesn't mean, you know, I want to say this too, it doesn't mean that we don't grieve. Yes. Um, because grief is important. Um, grief is healthy to, to, to acknowledge that we've faced a loss and we've, we've experienced a pain. We've experienced something that we won't be able to get back in this life, the experience of that loved one or, uh, or that friend or whoever it might be. Um, right. But to know uh, that we're not like those who grieve with no hope. We have hope. We have hope in the resurrection. We claim that death has been changed. Not that it's eliminated, but it's, it's been changed. It no longer has the final word. Um, and right now, I'm hoping in that. Yeah, I, I'm glad you wanted to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, both of us have, have been uh, grieving the loss of, of people this week. Um, whenever that happens, I, I find myself back here in 1 Corinthians 15 because it, it, it seems so profoundly wrong that we find our loved ones separated from us. And that is a correct feeling that we feel, because what we see here is not the way things should be, but the consequence of the fall, the consequence of sin, the consequence of a world that isn't the way it ought to be. When we turn to 1 Corinthians 15, and we see that in the hope that we have because Jesus was resurrected, that he triumphed over death, that that this profoundly wrong thing that each of us is facing throughout life as, as people who who are dear to us are lost and 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 we we try to get our minds around it and yet we go through life with something missing um that this isn't the way it's going to end that this isn't the end of the story paul says in, in verse 12 now if christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead but if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we have testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For even if the dead are not raised, not even, excuse me, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And, and of course, he goes on. He he he's saying all these possible things uh, to culminate in verse nineteen. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people 
most to be pitied. But then there's this beautiful transition, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And what a wonderful thing it is that we know that's true. Um, whomever it is that, that we've lost in our lives over the years, we know that this is true, that we will see them again, um, that we have hope as we face death. And, you know, we, we were talking about potential of war earlier, and that can be kind of intimidating for a series of reasons. You know, what will happen to loved ones that might be deployed? But also, if it gets bad enough, what happens to ourselves and our lives and our security? And, and yet, we're told in, in everything that we face that, that, that Jesus is triumphant and that that victory comes to all who put their hope in him. Just what a beautiful chapter. What beautiful hope in the midst of everything that we face in life. Uh, we, may, we may think about dwelling here next time uh, to just dig some more stuff out of 1 Corinthians 15. I, I don't think we can talk about it enough to be truthful with you. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't make things any easier, like we've been saying, but we need to hold on to God's word when it speaks truly to us. We need to hold on and we need to dwell there Yes, because this, this life, listen, this world we're living in, it can beat us down. That's the truth. Uh, and, and if, if the living God doesn't speak into this world, then this is not a world that I want to live in, but he has, and he does. And he speaks most firmly in Jesus Christ and in, in his resurrection. So that is something that even now, uh, I'm hoping in. I know you are too. Absolutely. Um, I would hate to face a life in which that was were, were not true, and yet I wouldn't want to face life with a false hope. But rather, I, I think what we find in Scripture and what we find in how God works in our lives, even that reminds us that He's with us, is that this isn't a false hope. It's a hope that feels impossible, and yet God is the God who does the impossible. Because um, it isn't impossible for him. And I, I totally agree. We should come back to this next time. We are out of time. But I, I hope for whatever all of our, our listeners are, are facing right now, that this has been an encouragement to you. Because the hope that we find here is a hope offered to to anyone who trusts in Jesus. And I, I hope that those listening do. And I hope that if you don't, that you will. Because uh, truly, whatever momentary satisfaction we may find, um, how much better to know that we're aligned with the king who brings life, um, the king who triumphs over death. It is the end of Zippy, and we are always glad that you're here, and uh, hope that you'll join us next time. If this has been an episode that's been thought-provoking and interesting to you, we sure would appreciate it if you would share it with your friends. Let them know that you listen to two Christian guys zipping through news and culture that matter to you. And of course, if you have not already, subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting source, whether it's Apple or Amazon, Spotify, Google, whatever you like to listen to your podcasts on, please listen every time by subscribing so you don't miss a single episode of Zippy, including when we return to 1 Corinthians 15 next time. We can't wait to join you once again. Comrade, as always, it's a joy going through all the interesting topics that we hit with you.